This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me speaking to you Wednesday, the day after the U.S. government sued slash finally sued Google and in, in what will be a landmark antitrust case. I'm quite surprised and pleased that our guest was able to find time to talk to us because he's got a full-time job covering Google for the New York Times. Welcome, Dai Wakabayashi from The Times. Hi, Dai. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Um, like I said, you've been very busy because you've been waiting for this suit for years at least forever at least a full year uh we finally got it um you've been covering the hell out of it we want to talk about what's in the suit what's not in the suit what to expect let's set it up contextually first of all this is this is the biggest suit since 1998 in terms of tech Mm -hmm. antitrust that's the u.s versus microsoft why are we seeing this suit now more than 20 years later. Why has there been a 20-year gap in sort of major antitrust tech lawsuits from the U.S. government? I think part of it is in the U.S., in general, the the sort of legal system in America has been reluctant to really go after big antitrust cases. If you look at America compared to a country like Europe, certainly the regulators here have not been as uh, muscular or aggressive in going after companies. And I think now... um, you know, often people say that antitrust is almost as much about politics as it is about the law. And so I think the political climate to go after kind of tech giants is is better, frankly. And so I don't think the, the nature of Google's monopoly has really changed uh, much in the last 10 years. Um, but now I think the sort of external conditions are perhaps right to go after them. Yeah, and we'll, we'll talk about both those things. And I wrote a little bit about the politics yesterday. This is a suit where you have Bill Barr and Elizabeth Warren lining up on the same side of the, the argument for maybe the first time, first and last time. Um, and, and like you said, a lot of this stuff is, is sort of about Google's behavior that's been more or less out in plain sight for for a decade or more. So let's talk about what is in the suit. Again, we knew the suit was coming. They've been working on this for a year. What is new in there? What is surprising? What did we learn from the actual complaint itself that they filed? I think what we learned was that it was a much more narrow um, case than than what we had been expecting maybe early on. There was a lot of talk early on that this might involve like search uh, involve digital advertising. So Google has the whole stack of digital advertising. And um, there was discussion that the DOJ case may have both 
digital advertising and search. And even within search, you know, there's aspects like local search. So that's this is like the Yelp issue mm-hmm. where Google will scrape, um, has in the past scraped information from other websites and presented it on their search results. And none of that was really in the in the suit. It's a very narrow uh, issue about search and sort of the deals that essentially help bring more traffic to Google google.com. And so it was a very narrow uh, case. And I think that's came a little bit as a surprise to us. What does that tell us? Does that tell us that this is the beginning of a suit and it could expand over time? Or this is the issue the Justice Department thinks they can win on and that'll be that? I think it's both is possible, but I think the latter is more more likely. Um, I think this is a case that is very similar, at least in sort of the contours to the Microsoft case, which was sort of not only the last big tech antitrust um, uh, lawsuit, but also the last time the government really won one of these things. And so they're really trying to focus on distribution. And so in, in, the, in the Microsoft case, they talked about you know, uh, how Microsoft was using Windows to, to help distribute Internet Explorer and how that was hurting Netscape. And so in this case, the government is trying a parallel case of saying Google is doing these deals that essentially lock in Google to all these other all the other kind of main pathways to search, and that's keeping out the competition, which in this case is like Bing and DuckDuckGo. So this is primarily focused um, on on your mobile phone, right? Uh, a lot of discussion about deals um, that Google has with Apple to make uh, Google the default uh, search engine there. And then also with other carriers, also the way it uses Android sort of as a default, as a sort of a de facto default. These have all been out in public, right? There's no there's no mystery about what Google's been doing. Oftentimes, uh, uh, Recode or other sites are reporting about the fact that so-and-so has a deal or has won a deal. What What is the government argument that says this thing that you've been doing for a decade or more is actually illegal? Yeah, I think that's a good, that's a totally good point. And I think what it's in Google's interest to normalize this as much as possible. And so you'll hear them make the analogy that these types of deals are no different than when Coca-Cola strikes a deal with Walmart to get shelf space um, at their stores and to get the best shelf space. What I think is sort of um, uh, maybe the, the, the sort of time element here is that how, how big these deals have gotten, partially because there are many more mobile devices in the world, partially because people are using search much, much more. And so as the size of these deals, as, this, as that kind of internet activity grows, obviously the numbers around these deals get much, much bigger. And so that goes to show kind of the how valuable these deals are for both Google and Apple. And so I think that maybe perhaps raises the stakes of something that has been happening perhaps in the background that maybe not a lot of people you know, have taken notice of. Now, when you, when you go into Walmart and Coca-Cola has purchased a certain shelf space or an end cap, right, that's a finite space. That means that, that Pepsi can't be there or if, you, if you're really old, uh, RC Cola can't be there. Mm. And in theory, right, you could actually, you could actually block a rival cola company from being there. Or if you go to McDonald's, they have Coke, but not Pepsi products or whatever it is. On the internet, 
Um, you can use Google or any other search service you want. Usually they, none of these deals preclude anyone from being able to use Google. Google has a dominant market share, but they don't own everything. This is one of their arguments. How do you think the government is going to sort of respond to Google's defense, which is, Hey, no one has to use us. No consumer has to use us. And oftentimes they swap different products out all the time. Yeah. I talked to a couple of legal experts yesterday and that was kind of one of their main, um, that, that's going to be a big point in this case is the notion that, you know, the government in their complaint has made a few references that, you know, that the, the, that very few consumers change their default option. And so they have to prove that somehow that it is very burdensome to, to change or that it is, in fact, very, very rare that people change. Now, um, this in the 1990s when, or in the late 90s and early 2000s when the government tried to make a similar case with Microsoft, it was really a pain in the butt to, to try to get a new browser that wasn't like Internet Explorer. Right. So you had to go and you had to get a CD-ROM of, like, of uh, Netscape, put it into your computer. If you didn't have enough hard drive space, maybe you had to like, delete things. That is not the case anymore, right? You can, you can change your um, uh, default search engine quite easily. It's not quite one click as Google likes to say, but I think it is it is if you are have any sort of tech savvy, you can do it quite easily. And so I think that's really going to be the crux of the government's case is like how important is it to be a default? You know, how infrequently do consumers actually exercise that choice to change when, you know, a, a handset manufacturer, a carrier makes that decision for you, you know, initially. Uh, the government also says, look, um, one of the, what, what Google is doing here by buying these default positions, it's buying, it's essentially buying itself all this data that makes its product much better. You or I were both on a Google uh, call yesterday and I asked them about that and they said, oh no, that's just not the case. And they kind of left it at that. But um, They said it was the method, not the data right. that matters. And so Google, yeah. and Google uh, in the DOJ case, over and over, they talk about sort of the amount of data Google is, is, is generating here sort of creates a moat for itself. Do you think that argument will hold up? Yeah, I mean, I think that is a very persuasive argument. I mean, I, I don't think any reasonable person can argue that having more uh, queries helps you build a better search engine. It's just like anything in life, right? The more you practice it, the better you're going to get. And, 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 so, and particularly when it comes to machine learning and software, right? Like that's, exactly. that's, there's, there's entire companies based on just get as much input as we can and we'll build a lead and then sort of figure out what to do with it later. Yes, totally. And, and I don't discount that there is some kind of method that you can take, um, you know, maybe less data and somehow build something that's good uh, or equivalent but I think that if you have already a huge, a great method, if you have more data on top of that, then, you know, your lead becomes quite insurmountable. And which, which I think is, is the reason why most people do prefer Google over, over alternatives. So you said uh, uh, the government won its Microsoft case, right? They, they won in court mm -hmm. and then there was a settlement and essentially mm -hmm. not a lot ended up happening to Microsoft by the end of it. And it, it went on for six years. What is... What are the lessons that do you think both Google and the DOJ took from the 1998 to 2004 U.S. government versus Microsoft case? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think Google, for its part, I think if you look at sort of the, the arguments that they made, that they sort of make, is which is it's easy to switch, which, which is sort of alludes to that, that issue that I was talking about earlier about how it was a pain in the butt to change your browser. Uh, they talk about how 
you know, consumers are choosing Google on their own. You know, that sort of alludes to the notion that, you know, uh, in the Microsoft case, you know, Internet Explorer was sort of selected for people and it wasn't like people were making a conscious decision. And so I think a lot of the arguments Google were making to sort of fight this case are things that go directly at the heart of the things that help the government win their case. And so I think that, you know, that's been the lesson for the government. I'm not quite sure, you know, it's it, they're sort of, um, they're more opaque about how, how what, what sort of um, arguments that they're trying to map on. Speaking of opacity, relative opacity, let, let's talk a little about the politics of, of this suit. Yeah. Um, so you, your colleagues reported that, that Barr was pushing to get this thing done um, in September initially, right? Um, and certainly before the election. Um, I've written about the fact that you've got, you know, uh, Elizabeth Warren, who detests Bill Barr, calls him a corrupt crony and wants him to resign, but is encouraging him to, to go ahead, ahead with this case. Um, why do you think the government or Bill Barr thinks it's important to have this case filed now as opposed to after the election or even in a different administration? I mean, I think, um, you know, Bill Barr is really fascinating in the sense that, um, uh, you know, he's been really obsessed with this um, suit from, from you know, this investigation and this suit from the very beginning. You know, it's, it's kind of hard And he's hard been clear to, about that. He's saying, I'm paying a lot of attention to this. This is something I am yes. personally uh, uh, watching carefully. Yeah, and, and he's been more involved in it than, you know, uh, historically attorney generals would get involved in, in matters like this. I mean, you know, he's he's worked for a long, who knows what his true motivations are, but, you know, he's worked for a long, long time uh, in the telecom industry. And as we all know, the telecom industry is no friend of Google. And I think it's possible that over these years, you know, he's had some very deep issues with the way Google does things, um, with the way they have competed with the telecom industry. You know, Barr was at Verizon when Google bid for wireless spectrum and effectively perhaps drove up the price of the spectrum that I think Verizon ended up buying, which is where Barr worked. And so, you know, I'm not saying that he's got this, it's, it's like a revenge play, but there is certainly a sort of long intertwined history between Barr and Google. And outside of the complaint, outside of the courtroom, there is a lot of discussion about reigning in big tech. And then there's a conservative slash Republican argument that says um, there's bias in the big tech companies um, and something should be done about that. Barr went on uh, Fox News this summer and said there's anti-conservative bias and maybe antitrust is a good way to go after these companies, which I find staggering. But the suit itself is it doesn't make any reference to that. And I assume that is very much intentional. Do you think there's any way that sort of the external discussion about bias and, and discrimination um, works its way into the courtroom one way or the other? I don't think so, because I do think, well, they just anno uh, announced today that a uh, that an Obama-appointed uh, judge will be the sort of judge for this for this uh, case. So it's uh, we'll see whether the conservative bias argument would would do very well in that court. But no, I I really don't think so. And and even the DOJ sort of went out of their way yesterday to to make clear in a, in a in a conference call that that aspect had nothing, those concerns had nothing to do with this case and they will not play in, in this case. They initially said, uh, we're, we're looking at that separately and everyone freaked out for a second on the call and said, yes. oh, by we, we don't mean we at all. We mean Congress. Right. Yeah. And, and then I think Trump also had a, some kind of tweet about how, you know, this is sort of the price Google has to pay. But, 
you know, I, I do think that ultimately in the court, it will be a very narrow case about the legal parameters of the Sherman Act and, you know, and, and arguing this from a pretty pure legal standpoint. And I think that, you know, bringing up at issues like bias actually weakens probably the government's case in a courtroom. You know, it's one thing to argue that in sort of social media and on Twitter and on Fox News and wherever, but, you know, I don't think that that's going to help you much in a courtroom. So Google has seen this coming for literally for years, right? And they've dealt with similar suits like this in Europe. You had a great piece uh, recently about how it, uh, on the, sort of the Google corporate culture, how you uh, you can say whatever you want, but that there's real stricture around any discussion of, of antitrust and monopoly. And um, it's, it's well worth checking out. How do you think the suit, now that the suit is filed, that this affects their behavior one way or another? You know, I think in, it, it's funny. Yesterday, um, Kent Walker, uh, who's Google's chief legal officer, and uh, Sundar Pichai, Google's CEO, you know, they both sent out emails to staff. And basically, Sundar's email was, stay focused, keep doing what you're doing, don't let this be a distraction. And then Kent Walker also had similar sentiments, but he also said, but let's not speculate about legal issues internally or externally, which is, to me, you know, keep your mouth shut sure. uh, and let's not talk about it. There's the not talking about it, but the, but what about in terms of actual corporate behavior? I'm thinking about, you know, they've known this suit's been coming, but they've still been trying to, for instance, buy Fitbit. Um, I know that for years and years, you know, whenever they do buy a company, the idea that it could be uh, blocked for anti-competitive reasons is always an issue. But they've continued to, to try to buy companies. You know, one of the, the, the narratives now about the Microsoft case is that the, that suit distracted Microsoft and, and, and prevented them from seeing the mobile revolution, and that's why they're nowhere in phones, et cetera. Um, Google certainly has been thinking about this, and I'm assuming that they're sort of balancing how do we not make the government angry? How do we not screw ourselves um, sort of while the case is going on versus how do we continue to be as aggressive and, and dynamic as we want to be? I think um, you're right. One of the things that Google has really learned from the Microsoft thing is that they think that basically Microsoft dropped the ball during the antitrust fight. They let it become such a distraction that essentially Google could, a company like Google could emerge. And, you know, Bill Gates has, has come out and said that. Which, by the way, there is a, much. there's a counter to that saying that's a convenient excuse for Microsoft screwing up. Right. Uh, and, of course, you'd want some other externality to blame if for not understanding phones. But go on. Right. <laughs> but I do think that, you know, yes, uh, Google continues to do deals, but they're not in that core search business. You know, if you, if you really look, they haven't done a real deal in search for a long, long time, maybe because they don't have to. But... You know, also because I think that they realize that that's going to draw unwarranted attention. And so, yeah, you know, they do Fitbit, uh, they buy Fitbit, but, you know, that's to help potentially, you know, their hardware business, which is essentially nowhere right now. You know, they buy things for Google Cloud um, and here and there. But I do think that there's no, I, I can't imagine them going out and buying like DuckDuckGo, not like DuckDuckGo right. to sell to Google, but like my point being like, that's just not a deal that's, that's even possible right now. And and so the timeline for this case is they were saying yesterday, I mean, basically a year and a half of discovery, right, before we even sort of get to a courtroom. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, so we'll be talking about this for a long time, but sort of practically thinking how long, what's a reasonable expectation to sort of start to finish for this case? 
I mean, I don't know. I mean, your guess is as good as mine. I think, you know, I, I think it was micro, it was Google that said 12 to 18 months yep. of dis- discovery. And I think that's optimistic. You know, they're going to they're going to drag out everything, you know. They're going to grind out every discovery motion. They're going to ask for documents and then they're going to fight that request. And so I just think it's going to be years and years and years. This assumes by the way that this assumes by the that that a a a uh, future administration continues the suit. Exactly. And that's what I was going to say is, uh, you know, a former um, Google policy person came on Twitter yesterday and said, you know, now, mind you, this is a, from a Google perspective, right? He said, uh, if if Trump wins, they think he thinks that they'll fight it in court for years and that ultimately Google will win on the merits of the case. And then he said, but if Biden comes in, a new AG might come in, look at it and realize it's not that strong legally and try to settle in a face-saving way. And that might mean a few concessions from Google and, you know, the the matter gets settled quite quickly. And he's, you know, pointed to how um, when a, I think it was Bush uh, came in, he settled, uh, you know, they wrapped up the Microsoft case pretty quickly yeah. instead of fighting through all the appeals. Yeah, I guess the other argument I've heard is if Biden comes in, he can say, look, this is a bipartisan suit. Um, mm. You know, uh, you can't argue this is political at this point. We're, 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 we're taking out something Bill Barr started. So yeah. um, we've got cover here. Although those, that's, I've generally heard that from people who want, who want uh, Google to get sued. And I think, you know, it'll, a lot will depend on who the AG is. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's like Elizabeth Warren, I imagine she's not going to back off uh, an antitrust suit against Google. Um, it just wouldn't be in her, in her like brand. So, um, you know, it, it'll be interesting. What is the worst case scenario for Google here beyond uh, fighting a, a long, a long suit? I think like a worst case scenario. I mean, uh, the remedies are potentially the worst case scenario, right? So if you have something that breaks up the company in a way that is really fundamental, so either uh, you know you say. Um, you got to spin off Android from Google or something, or you got to you can't. Um, uh, YouTube has to be its own separate entity. Um, those are all sort of the the worst case scenarios. I think there's like middle sort of structural things that that Google would be probably okay with, like if the government said, "All right, you got to spin off DoubleClick," although that doesn't really make sense now in the context of search, but. You know, um, if if the other sort of lawsuits that are expected about state AGs. You know, if they say double click, you know, spin off double click, Google would probably be okay with that. It's interesting, right? Because Google is still, has his tentacles everywhere. It's huge. It's in so many parts of our life. But at its core, the business is still that search engine and search uh. ad business, right? So there's a version where they have to sort of separate themselves from the other stuff, but they remain almost as powerful as ever. Yeah. I mean, that's the golden goose, right? That's That's allowed them to have their self-driving cars, and that's allowed them to have everything. And everyone on the company knows that, you know, the search is the thing that 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 pays for everything. And so um, it'll be interesting. I mean, I think the government's challenge is how do you sort of try to weaken search in a way structurally? Um, and maybe it's it's to spin it off, spin off Android so that, you know, the link between Android and Google search is not as strong. But yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be a challenge. I mean, I, I think one of the challenges of this case is whether this actually changes anything for people. Right, and that's the, where I was going to end up here. Is it? Is it? It's it's striking, and maybe it's just the nature of a lawsuit. Something has to happen, and then you have to sort of investigate it and then sue someone because of something that's happened in the past. But it seems like this is literally a litigation of things that we were dealing with five or ten years ago, and and 
just don't seem as relevant. They're enormously relevant if if you're looking at Google as a search business, right? Still, and um, but it seems like you know there was a, if you were covering tech, I was covering tech a while. There was a lot of serious discussion about whether Yahoo could mount a real challenge to Google or if Bing could do it, and that's why Microsoft was going to buy Yahoo. And those all just seem like ancient history now, and that this is a, mm-hmm. a settled argument. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's striking to me. And I guess where, where you end up with is. Is this does this sort of underscore the the real divide here being should the US be more aggressive about enforcing antitrust rules or does the US need new antitrust rules so you wouldn't get to this point? I think you need to decide, you know, I think I'm not sure if it, both. I mean, they need new antitrust rules that are maybe allow them to be uh, more proactive along the way. I, I think what is sort of um, what might end up, having the effect that maybe the government wants, which is less Google, which is that, you know, we might end up with all these different ways of sort of searching for information that's already sort of happening, whether it's, you know, uh, Amazon Echo or it's, you know, the, the notion of typing in a query into a box and getting a bunch of links, that idea has evolved over time. But, you know, I can't imagine that that's going to be the principal way of us finding information 10 years from now. And so if the government creates enough friction for Google so that, you know, when they're, when the business evolves to the next thing, that Google feels a little handcuffed or, or can't really quite move at the same pace as everyone else, maybe that has that creates the sort of consequence that, you know, the law can't really do right now. I want to leave it there because, as we've been discussing, this is going to go on for a long time. So we're going to have other opportunities to come back to. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks again, Di. Um, we asked him on short notice. I appreciate him hopping on. Like I said, we've we've got some time to cover this one, so we'll come back to it. If you guys have specific questions and thoughts about this antitrust suit or how we're covering antitrust and and politics of tech in general, love to hear from you. Let me know. Uh, as always, I am all ears, metaphorically. Got some bonus content coming from you in just a second, maybe a minute. It's an interview with Julia Furlan, my colleague from Vox Media, who's working on a cool new podcast. We're going to talk about that, and perhaps we'll talk about my role in said podcast. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. And now here's Julia. Julia Furlan, welcome. Hi. Hi, Peter. How you doing? Thanks for having me. It's nice to talk to you again. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess we should do disclosure first. Um, we're going to talk about a project you're working on. This rarely happens, but I think I'm involved in this project as, as well. <laughs> yeah. Is that true? 
Yep. Okay. Uh, yeah, I got you. I, I booked an interview with you. It was, wow, I'm, I'm so honored. Did I make I'm the so cut? Honored. You did. You did. Okay, good. You did. So, Fortunately, you said enough gonna, funny things. Good, so good. So it. we're going to talk to Julia about her podcast, which is called? Go for Broke. Which is about? It's about, uh, ostensibly, it's about moments in history where people sort of like get too excited about something and lose the plot um, and go overboard. So in this case, it's about the dot-com bubble. Season one is about the dot-com bubble of 2000, when many people, in fact, lost the plot and lost, uh, you know, lost their minds a little bit. And I'm so old that I have a reasonably uh, decent memory of what it was like <laughs> to be alive during that time. So that's what I talked to Julie about. Um, this has great art on it because the sort of the main <laughs> character here is the Pets.com sock puppet. Did it have a name? Um, actually, that's part of the strategy. They didn't have a name for the Pets.com sock puppet because it meant that every time you talked about the Pets.com sock puppet, you had to say Pets.com sock puppet. So it ended up being an extra boost and sort of like a a really smart marketing move ultimately because uh, the Pets.com sock puppet was everywhere. And it's become an emblem of the dot-com bubble uh, in a lot of ways. So this is why your show is a good show for people who like listening to my show because it's a good combination of, of business history, finance history, bubble history, uh, yeah. and, and cultural history, right? The idea Absolutely. that a sock puppet from a dot-com that no one had ever heard <laughs> of um, was sort of created out of thin air yeah. really quickly. And then within months is on the Macy's Day float and oh, yeah. is doing Oscar spots for Good commercial. Morning America. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Yes, and the Super Bowl commercial. It's like, I think that one of the things that's interesting about looking at this particular moment in history is that it was that transition between uh, things being like really easy to Google and find online. Like nowadays, if you research it, it's this couple of years where there's kind of a dead zone for the the archival stuff. Um, so it's been really fun to look at, you know, old archival um, articles and look at like old clips and sort of like look at this moment in media and tech and culture and say like, how is it that a sock puppet that's a promotional uh, device for a company that has yet to make a profit, how is that sock puppet on Good Morning America like regularly as a guest? Like yeah. why is that sock puppet like mildly sexually harassing the hosts of this show. You know what I mean? It's so and, weird. And also the idea that it's it's a reminder of up until just very recently, TV was the thing that drove the culture. If, mm -hmm. uh, the dot-com boom was very exciting, but what made it exciting for most people was they were learning about it on TV. And so it made sense to go take out a Super Bowl ad to promote your dot-com, or it made a weird kind of sense. Um, yeah. By the way, as an, as an aside, I have this theory that that Google is really biased towards recency, and that makes it very bad for finding out about things that are older. You know, um, I would be, I wouldn't be surprised. Like that's that's something that happens in the research for this all the time, actually. So you're working on this. It's how many episodes? It's six, six episodes. Um, I'm really excited about it because, like you were saying, like you know, the, the media has changed a lot in the last twenty years, and so has the technology industry, and so has business. But a lot of the things that we're looking at in this series are, like, super-duper relevant right now, you know? like Because um, of bubbles. 
<laughs> yeah, right? bubbles. And also, but also like larger things like, um, you know, you had Shireen on to talk about antitrust and uh, antitrust was a big deal even in in the dot-com bubble because Microsoft had uh, hearings, antitrust hearings against them soon, at, like in the late 90s, before the actual bubble really happened. But, U.S. Um, versus Microsoft, you're hearing a lot about it. Like you just said, you'll be hearing about it this week, I think, because the <laughs> DOJ is about to sue Google. So yeah. we're going to have a, a replay of that. And exactly. history doesn't rhyme, but it, it echoes. So there's a lot a lot here to crunch on. What, um, what's the mix, do you think, here between business history and cultural history? You know, I think that you can't really talk about the cultural things that that I think are are large large parts of things without so for example, like it's hard to talk about the dot com bubble without also talking about um how, going back to the, like deregulation in the 80s and how you know, baby boomers all of a sudden were retiring and they wanted to, inv- and they ended up investing in 401ks and that changed the economy. Like the, this moment 20 years ago and 20 plus years ago a little bit has a lot of um, underlying things that were happening both governmentally and um, in economically that created that moment. So my hope is that you'll get the, the cultural things and the business history um, as much as possible. But like, you know, I, I also am really excited to look at the early, early social media. We have an episode that's talking about Black Planet, which I think is something that doesn't necessarily get brought into the conversation when you're talking about the, the dot-com bubble so often. I think often. it never does. So tell us what Black Planet was. Uh, so Black Planet was a... Um, a social media platform that geared towards the black community. It was extremely popular. Um, it was founded by a guy named Omar Wausau, who is now a professor at Princeton, which tells you, um, you know, <laughs> which tells you like what what the staying power of of like being a tech entrepreneur in the turn of the right at the bubble was like. And Black Planet was actually this site that we're using as like a counterexample to the bubble because they were very lean. They didn't have the like splashy uh, IPO situation. They were really focused on like creating an actual community, which is sort of like what the internet was in its early days. And it was uh-huh. really successful. And I don't know. I think it's 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 an interesting piece of the story that doesn't usually get told as part of the larger history. By the way, if you are paying attention to debates about cancel culture uh, and a very specific <laughs> instance uh, uh, this summer involving Black Lives Matter, Omar Wasa was relevant to that. So, again, everything is always connected. Um, one <laughs> other great bit of trivia that I knew about because I knew about the construction of the show, but I had forgotten about it until I heard about it, was was the the guy who was the sock puppet. Yeah. Do you want to yeah. do, do the reveal? Sure. Michael Ian Black, the comedian that you may know, writer, uh, you know, he has a podcast. He's sort of everywhere. He was fresh off the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, uh, like, like live show tour and used his voice from that to become the Pets.com sock puppet and sort of like did improv as the sock puppet. And that was the the main, um, the the like one of the driving forces of the Pets.com so sock my, puppet. My memories of the dot-com boom are both specific and also hazy because <laughs> um, I was inebriated for a lot of it. Um, <laughs> All that free Michael, booze. <laughs> yes. We, that's what we talked about in our, in, our, in our interview is me going to a lot of parties as a young person because um, they had free things. Um, mm. 
was Michael Ian Black famous for doing that? Or was you know, he or or was he not did he not sort of want or get fame from that? What's interesting about it is that he for him it was a gig, you know, like his the things that he cared about, I think were more his like visible improv and the shows that he was doing. But the the pets.com sock puppet, despite him being in the Super Bowl, like on, on a Super Bowl commercial, his sort of perspective on it was like, yeah, it was a good paycheck, <laughs> you know, like, which tells you a lot about how actors are able to sort of like really own something, but also be like, nah, yeah, whatever, it's fine. I did a whole piece, which is not a long piece for Forbes, about people whose voices were famous, but you didn't know th- their name. One was the ta- the guy who did the Taco Bell dog. Oh, yeah, the um, racist dog, Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to wait Peter. on that. His Peter. name was Carlos. <laughs> I can't remember his last name. I'll get his last name wrong. Uh-huh. He did well, the guy, the guy who was the uh, movie phone voice guy. Oh my God, the movie phone voice guy. Yeah, uh, which oh. is a great story. And then there was someone else. Was it? Was it? I, I'd, I'd look it up, but uh, <laughs> I wrote it a long time ago, so it may not be on Google. Julia, we can get your podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts. The first episode is out now, and by the time you hear this yep. one, the second will be out. So it's mm-hmm. not too late to catch up. Yeah. Dive in. And if you want to hear Peter Kafka, that'll show up at some point. Yes, that will be, I think, ideally in episode four. So in a couple of weeks. But um, mostly I'm just grateful to you for, for like, you know, helping me get the word out. That's how podcasts get popular. So thank you. Thank you, Julia. Good luck and good luck with your internet up there in your undisclosed (laughs) location. I'm going to let you go. I appreciate it. Bye now. Thanks again to Julia and to Di and to Joel and Jelani produce and edit this podcast. Thanks again to our sponsors and thanks again to you guys. We've got a couple action-packed weeks coming up and then who knows what will happen, Um, but we'll be recording through all of it. This is Recode Media. We'll see you soon. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.